You washed up. Sorry? <laughs> Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for uh, your skills. Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the island podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That That's perfect for me. That's... The for you to join us on the beach tonight. Ah, oh, it's so beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I'm usually here at sunrise. Mm. You should see that. Um, evenings are more my thing, right. but, right. uh, you know, I come here a lot with Mary. I bring Mary Hello. down here. Hello, my name is Mira. Mary. Of course. Hey, Mary. Hello would be a more appropriate response. Um, okay. Wow. Yeah. Mary, thanks yeah. for the tip. Yeah. See, she's a little spicier since she got her new chip. Mm-hmm. Mary, be nice. Spice is nice, but sugar is sweeter. Yes, okay. Duly noted on that, Mary. Mm -hmm. Are are you wearing heels? Yes. Yes, I am. On the beach? Yes. And why? It's my tribute to Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) I found Bella Lugosi, a Hungarian-American actor. No, 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 no. Mary, Mary. Nancy Pelosi. I found Placido Domingo, a world-renowned opera singer and No, 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 Mary, listen to me, listen to me. Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi. Peluso, Ron Peluso, an no, American no, no, theater no. director. No, no, no. Okay, Mary, try this, try this. Okay. First woman to serve as Speaker of the House and second in line to the presidency. I found Nancy Pelosi. Yes. That's the one. That's the one. That's it. That's it. Can you walk in the sand with those heels? No, I cannot. But you know, if Nancy can wear four inch heels touring battlefields in the Ukraine, I can at least try. That does raise the question, why would she wear heels in a battlefield? Because she does, Mo, okay? That's just who she is, okay. all right? Get over it. I remember when she stood on the House floor and talked for eight hours as a protest for the yes. lack of legislation protecting dreamers. Yes, los I remember that. Yes. Los descendientes de los inmigrantes tienen miedo de los inmigrantes. Yes. Esta tierra es para todos. Yes, I remember that. Miri, Miri, what, what year was that? In 2018, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, delivered an eight-hour speech on the floor of the House Mm -hmm. to oppose the budget deal to lift spending caps Mm -hmm. and avert a government shutdown Mm -hmm. because the plan did not address immigration issues and the future of dreamers. The longest House speech since 1909. Yes, right. In her four-inch heels, mind you, eight hours, no bathroom break, standing reading letters from dreamers, and you know the press? They were all about the heels. Oh my gosh, photos of close-ups of her feet and heels were everywhere. And I'm thinking, this isn't about fashion, people. This this woman, 77 years old at the time, stood for eight hours with no breaks to make a bold statement. And then I realized, okay, wait a minute. Maybe four-inch heels is a bold statement, right? She was exercising strength and endurance and passion her way. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And? What? Okay, not to rain on anyone's parade, but what? let's also remember that all politicians should be regarded with a healthy dose of skepticism. Okay, okay, Mo. Okay, I know Nancy is not perfect, of course, but she is not perfect in four-inch heels. Who else can say that? You I'm are obsessed with those heels. I am, I am. I don't know. It's kind of, uh, 
It's kind of like a symbol of some kind. A you know? symbol is a common percussion instrument. No, 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 Mary, no, not, not that kind not. of symbol. No, 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 no. Okay, the seven types of symbols are pictogram, no. ideogram, no. icon, No, 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 not that either. No, no, Mary, not that either. A symbol is an act, sound, or uh, object having okay. cultural significance and the capacity to excite or objectify a response. Yes. That is what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. These four-inch heels are an object of significance, exciting a cultural response from me. Hey, speaking of exciting a cultural response, do you remember the coat? Oh, the coat. I oh, found, coat. I really don't care, do you? Printed on a coat worn by the first lady while visiting migrants on the border. No, 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 no wrong no. coat, Mary. Yeah, wrong the coat. orange Max Mara coat that right. Nancy wore walking out of a very tense meeting at the White House. Yeah. Recalculating. Okay, good. Recalculating. Fashion designer Max Mara yeah. decided to reissue the orange coat because of overwhelming demand. Yes. See. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Not that everyone has to wear heels and designer coats to show strength, right? I mean, the strength comes from not caring what others think about what you're wearing, whatever it is. And she's so not afraid to be feminine, and I love it. Born woman, she knows how to play. That good old boy game, she's clever, clever, she's no lemon with sugar coating. She's tart with icing, it's stellar, stellar. Walking tall in four-inch heels, don't look so mad about it. Just sing it with me, femininity rules the world. She's pulverizing that marble ceiling for all the girls. Her Max Mara coat is totally dope, so is her career. Oh, this is my ode to Nancy Pelosi. Thank you for your service in enduring this misogynistic patriarch. E. I'm not exactly into hero worship of anyone, I know, but I, know, I will I give you, Pelosi is still leader for a few weeks, yep. and at 82, you gotta give her credit for that. Okay, see, exactly, exactly, but okay, how many women in their 80s are still in a position to exercise that kind of power? I mean, any kind of power. Like, how many female CEOs are in their 80s? Well, there probably aren't many men CEOs in their 80s either. True, Did you true. know that there are more male CEOs named Peter than all female CEOs combined? Yes. I did not know that, Mary. Wow, that's really something, isn't it? Okay, and I'm not saying that women in their 80s can't exercise power. I'm saying how many amazing women in their 80s are even given the chance to, right? Bold woman, right. so insubordinate, knows how to torment the fellas, the fellas who can't handle the inner goddess. Well, being modest, don't settle the devil. So she stands tall in four-inch heels. And damn, she looks fabulous. She does. Just sing it with me. Femininity rules the world. She's pulverizing that marble ceiling. Okay, Nancy says, five children in six years is the best training for a speaker of the house. Oh, this is my ode to Nancy.
glorious and enduring, this misogynistic and anti-feministic patriarch. You know, Mary, what, remind me, what is that thing that they say about Ginger Rogers? Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did, only backwards and in high heels. Yeah, see, that's what I'm talking about, yeah, well, that's Calling out about. her name in the halls of the Capitol on January 6th was super icky. That was super, super icky. And she was supposed to be the victim of that despicable home invasion, don't forget. And those hundreds of attack ads and the midterms featuring her as the villain, right? Oh, candidate A voted with Nancy Pelosi 250 times. Don't elect candidate A. Yeah, to be fair, yeah. both sides create villains to get votes soon. I know, I know, I know. But when you ask her how she feels about all of the attacks against her, what does she say, Mary? If I wasn't effective, I wouldn't be at Target. Yes. Boom. Oh, she's a monster. A boogeyman, a Democrat. <gasps> oh, she's a target walking by. Don't agonize, organize. Yes. Just sing it with me. Femininity rules the world. She's pulverizing that marble ceiling for boys and girls. Okay, Nancy says, but we have to pass the bill so you can find out what's in it. Oh, this is my ode to Nancy Pelosi. Thank you for your service in enduring this misogynistic, anti-feministic, grueling and dismissive, woman-hating, pessimistic, patronizing, condescending, patriarchy. Okay. So remember when she first became Speaker of the House? Mm -hmm. And there she was, sitting behind George W. at his 2007 State of the Union address. And before launching into his speech, he turns to Nancy and he says, I have the high privilege and distinct honor as the first president mm -hmm. to begin the State of the Union message with these words, Madam Speaker. <laughs> and everyone stood and clapped. Oh my gosh, she got points for that. Yes, both sides of the aisles clapped. And she, I think she was genuinely surprised. You know, sadly, I don't think that could happen now. No. We've just become way too polarized. I know, I know, that's true. But you know what? It will always be part of our history is the day a woman wearing four-inch heels became second in line to the presidency. Just sing it yep. with me, femininity rules the world. She's pulverizing that marble ceiling for boys and girls. Not only the first woman to lead a major party, but also the first Italian-American. As a kid, she was offered a toy elephant by a Republican poll worker, but refused to take it. Did you know Nancy eats ice cream for breakfast? No, you don't did say. not know that. Oh, this is my ode to Nancy Pelosi. Thank you for your service, gentlewoman, female warrior, role model, dauntless leader, Madam Speaker. E. <laughs> Zibby Lasky, Sylvia Pontaza, Mo Perry. Thank you very much. 
for our little O to Nancy Pelosi. Now please welcome our guest contributor for the night, Rosanna Staffa. Rosanna, come on up. So, um, Rosanna, you moved from Milan to New York City in the mid-80s. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. And the story you're going to share with us happened sort of shortly thereafter. Yep. Very shortly. Yeah. And <laughs> life was all sort of, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Discombobulated. Mm-hmm. Everything was all right. Mm-hmm. So here now to share that story is Rosanna Staffa. Holy, the poetry reading by Allen Ginsberg at the public theater will start soon. I picked up the pace. I could smell on me. My musty fourth floor woke up. Pigeons cried at the fire escape I now kept locked. Uh, someone had broken in, stolen my change, and thrown all my stuff on the floor like a crazed lover. <laughs> Things had been disorienting for me in America. Nobody knew who I was. I was confused myself. You know, there were no rules. The streets were noisy and crowded. Barefoot men ran around at dusk, screaming. I heard that Allen Ginsberg lived in the East Village, too. I looked for a solitary figure in bars, dark hair, wild. I would approach him. I would be bold and impressive. And he would be the one to explain to me how things were. I teetered forth on my high heel sandals. There was a f- euphoria in the danger of high heel, the ruthlessness they demanded. I had worn them last in Milan, walking along the halls of the advertising agency where I worked as a junior copywriter. I tapped desires, guessed fears. I told the clients how to feel better, like a doctor. I also wrote total crap. <laughs> you, you don't take this seriously, do you? An old buddy asked me over a Campari. Once we had shared dream of opening a free detox center. Oh, not really. But I did. On the way home from seeing my friend, I sought the comfort of the Feltrinelli bookstore. A book placed in prominence caught my eyes. It was a volume of poetry by Allen Ginsberg, just translated. I had never heard of him. The other photo had a unique, disorderly beauty. A balding man with tasseled long hair and glasses caught in intense sunlight. I turned the pages and read Che sono caduti in ginocchio in cattedrali senza speranza pregando per la salvezza reciproca who fell on their knees in hopeless cathedrals praying for each other's salvation. The words cut through my skin. Then night the poet walked home with me, past darkened store fronts, 
We stop at everything, like fussy birds, coins, cigarette butts. Everything is holy. We picked up discarded subway tickets and pen caps, marveling at them under the orange shaft of streetlights. Holy, holy. At home, late into the night, I read aloud the new copy I had written for a foldable bed. Reread what I had started jotting down for a resort in Idaho. I felt a white hot rage. My colleagues at the advertising agency where I gasped when I announced I quit. Crazy, you said, you're crazy. And I laughed. I was scared in a dopey way. I liked it. At the public theater, the clock confirmed I was late. Goddamn hills. I had imagined that Allen Ginsberg, adjusting his glasses at the podium, would notice my thoughtful attention, sitting right at the front. Tell me, I want to hear your name, he would ask at the end. But I was late. The elevators were busy. There would be standing room only at the very back. But I sighted a fright elevator. I hurtled in. There was plenty of space, but I could barely breathe. Anxiety, exhilaration. I glanced at the middle-aged man in the way back. He pushed the button without asking what floor I wanted. I paced in agitation, click, click, click. The man kept his eyes down, babbling to himself. He, 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 ha, ha. I tried not to look at him. He cut a curious figure unsettling. Cleanly shaven, hair cut bluntly just under the chin. He wore a red tie, a white shirt, and an oversized dark jacket. He had dressed without a mirror, I thought. He had red lips. Red like from lipstick. A bold color I liked. <laughs> I had to turn this weirdo off like static on a radio. There were so many things I wanted to tell Allen Ginsberg. I strained to remember them and concentrate. <laughs> things like, what the heck is going on in this city? It is freaking me out. It was supposed to be marvelous. No, not this. I would tell him of the old man who thought I was a drunk because I swayed on my heels and who told me that all Poles were drunks. I'm Italian, I said. Them too. <laughs> The elevator wobbled, it came to a stop. The man kept mumbling with a kind of sinister intensity. I wonder if he realized we would be late to the poetry reading. We might miss it altogether. The one and only time I could hear Rolling Ginsberg. My agitation was clearly disturbing his concentration as he had turned away, whispering with more determination. I presume it was reciting a prayer that kept him center, his whispering and a rhythm. The elevator moved, he kept shaking, then stopped and it opened at the right floor. The man walked out without a nod. I slipped right after him. Ah, uh, a poster caught my eyes. The face of the same man sans lipstick stared at me from the poster on the wall, announcing tonight's poetry reading by Allen Ginsberg. 
In the photo, he was clean-shaven, his hair cut bluntly, right below the chin. I kept staring at the poster. It is my desire who conjure up my image I knew. I was deeply upset, as if Allen Ginsberg had promised to say something personal and vital to me that he knew I needed so badly to hear right now, and he had refused to speak. The sound of the applause became audible. The audience was welcoming Allen Ginsberg to the podium. I was a silly young woman in a cheap dress. Allen Ginsberg could not care less about me. Worse, he might recognize me as the jerk who had driven him nuts in the elevator. A few latecomers were hurrying into the room, bumping into him. But I did not want to listen to this man recite the poetry I loved. He was a stranger, not the friend of the hard times I'd known so well. That man had written down the fragment of thoughts in his mother's mind as a glorious pian, and we cried together. I cried for my mother and his. I had come to meet the man who had asked his doctor to bring in Gertrude Stein on phonograph and brought the LSD poem listening to her voice. I read it aloud over the noise of the MY subway in Milan, knocked around by commuters after a friend had died of an overdose. I left the public theater and headed wherever I felt like going, which was nowhere. I remember walking. I walked for a long time. Kids in ripped t-shirts gave me flyers, big pacifist eyes, sexing in the skin, passing out incomprehensible leaflets. The East Village was going to sleep like a big animal, skin twitching. A man in an embroidered jacket held a powder brew parakeet on an extended arm for photo opportunities. What's the point, I thought, wanting it. The man offered the bird to me. The parakeet clutched my wrist. The simplicity of the trust, the striking beauty and the garish light. I stare hard to remember this moment always. When I reached home, a young man was sitting on my doorstep, legs extended across the entrance. He had large blue eyes. He was shooting up. We stared at each other, frozen in mutual fright. I am cool, he said. Are you cool? He looked like a fallen angel. Angela had hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night. I am cool, I said. I stepped over his legs, unlocked the door, and headed upstairs. The stairs were slippery in the dark. I was high on fear. Oh, God, did you see that? Fucking scary, I whispered, calling out to my old buddy, Allen Ginsberg, to be by me, as he used to. Your poetry materialized. It was scary. Where did you think you'd find my poetry? It wasn't the response I wanted, but he was right. 
Well, okay, I said to him, uh, the parakeet was cool. I'll give you that. A door opened on the floor above me. Someone listened for a moment and slammed it shut. I was just another lunatic in New York, talking to an imaginary friend. It felt delicious. We started climbing up to my house. He was frazzled. Adjusted his glasses. They were dirty. Give them to me, I said. I cleaned them with the hem of my skirt. I thought you had shaved. That's a god-awful idea. What for? Exactly. At home, I picked up Howe from a pile of books under the sink. Allen Ginsberg sat by the small light on my table and started reading to me in a soft whisper, one hand marking the rhythm. Run down by the drunken taxi cabs of absolute reality who jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge. This actually happened and walked away unknown and forgotten into the ghostly days of Chinatown, soup alleyways and fire trucks. Not even one free beer. Rosanna Staffa, thank you so much, Rosanna. Thank you so much. Rosanna has a novel coming out in May. It's called The War Ends at Four. Yes? Yes. Uh, it's published by Regal House Publishing, and you can pre-order it at uh, regalhousepublishing.com. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Rosanna. Thank you so much. Now please welcome our musical guest, Leslie Vincent. Leslie, come on up. Texas, 
young girl travels down the road a 2000s Toyota red vines and coke she jumps on the beltway her possessions filled to the brim and she wonders if she'll regret going home with him her home is stuck in the rear view and her heart is back east and she's thinking of you and your wild spirit and all you went through alone, 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 alone. Our prophecies coming true and you're missing me while I'm missing you. Leslie Vincent, thank you. So this, this song um, is about two parallel journeys. Yeah. So your grandmother picks up and leaves. She's 18 years old, and she picks up and leaves Boston mm-hmm. and her family and moves to Texas with her boyfriend who has just gotten an offer to finish a PhD in Texas. Yeah. So he can go work for the CIA. Yeah. Right? Like big stuff. Big stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was very controversial in the family. Yeah, so I'm Italian, and um, when the eldest daughter leaves the state and doesn't come back, um, she's basically cut off. It was kind of taken as like a big abandonment, and how dare she, because traditionally the eldest daughter takes in the parents. So the other siblings were really mad that she didn't do that, and we don't talk to that side of the family. Um, Serious stuff. It's just like really deep. And also the boyfriend was Irish. Yeah, yeah. So this is these are my grandparents. Um, yeah, so we have an Irish-Italian wedding in uh, 1959. He also wasn't Catholic, so it was... I know. I Thank you so much for your sympathy. I, I appreciate it. Wow, that's really unique. Um, you, when we were talking, we were talking earlier, you were saying what was so interesting about that was the generation before that had left Italy. Yeah. I mean, they left their whole country and came over and they didn't go back. Yeah, so I was telling Sue that the way that my family got to America, uh, my great-great-grandfather came over to make a new life, um, get the whole family over, and he met a woman and never came back. And then they sent my great-grandfather to get him, and he met a woman and he never came back. (laughs) But somehow when my grandmother did it and went to another state, that was was the line. That was... That was too far. That's it, that's it. Okay, so then the parallel journey in the song is when you are picking up and moving here. Yeah, I I actually moved here from D.C. I kind of moved here on a whim. I literally packed everything I owned into my car and drove, and I had red vines, which I would always recommend in a road trip situation. Um, Yeah, and I I drove here um, to live. I'd been here one time for five days, but it was in January, so I, like, I kind of knew the worst-case scenario, but otherwise. Be- because of all this family history, you, you had been given the message that the sort of fear of making the wrong choice, mm. you know, we don't leave home, we don't do that. Yeah. And, and you just went for it. I just went for it. I think 
I grew up in a household that was full of regret and full of looking back. And if I hadn't done this, if I hadn't done that, all this should never have gone to Texas. Never. So I was like, I'm just going to go. Yeah. I'm not going to think twice. Yeah. Just going to jump in. <laughs> no Ex- regrets. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Thank you, Leslie. And, and Leslie will be back with another song in a little bit. Okay, Thank you, Leslie. Thank you, In elementary school, I was always going to the nurse's office. There was a little stash of books and a cot, and if you didn't feel well, you could go curl up in there and read. This was way better than class. In class, I'd get bored, understimulated, so off to the nurse's office I'd go, complaining of a stomach ache or a headache. This worked a few times, but I overplayed my hand. One day, the nurse sat me down and asked if I'd ever heard the story of the boy who cried wolf. She explained it to me. If I kept pretending to be sick, who would believe me if I ever really was? This stopped me cold. Faking sickness was off the menu from then on. Fast forward to my early 20s. I was in the Peace Corps in Burkina Faso, West Africa, and I was having a tough time of it. I had a hard time connecting with any of my fellow volunteers, and I grew increasingly lonely, longing for home and the friends and family I'd left behind. I felt useless. I couldn't see how I was helping anyone by being there, how what I had to give was lining up with what anyone there needed. I thought all the time about bailing, about declaring it a failed experiment and requesting to come home, which we were allowed to do at any time, but I was too stubborn. I didn't want to be a quitter. I kept thinking maybe it would get better. Maybe I'd make more connections, find a way to be useful. One night, four months into my service, I woke up in the middle of the night with a terrible pain in my chest. I thought there might be something wrong with my heart. First thing in the morning, I got a ride to the nearest town with a bus stop. I spent 10 days in the capital where the head Peace Corps nurse did everything she could to figure out what might be wrong with me. But the cause remained unclear. In the meantime, the pain in my chest continued day and night, and when they eventually decided to medevac me to D.C. for more thorough testing, I didn't object. I tried to hide my relief. I still didn't know if I'd be coming back or not, but I was grateful for the chance to go home, at least for a little while. And in D.C., an endoscopy revealed that the valve between my stomach and my esophagus had gone slack, allowing stomach acid to flood my chest. The pipe that literally connects my stomach and my head was on fire. Messages from my gut rising like fireworks, grabbing the attention of my mind and not letting go. My thyroid had also crapped out. I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition called Hashimoto's thyroiditis and told I wouldn't be able to return to Africa. By then, I was so shut down, I didn't know how to feel. So autoimmunity happens when the immune system goes haywire and starts attacking the body's own tissues. Cells that normally decipher between self and invader lose the plot and crank out antibodies that go after the thyroid or the joints, the intestinal lining or blood cells. Some of the most common triggers include infections and extreme stress. Multiple studies have found that up to 80% of autoimmune patients reported uncommon emotional stress before disease onset. So lately, I've been studying Ayurveda. It's an ancient system of medicine that originated thousands of years ago in India. And in Ayurveda, we're each believed to have multiple layers of the body, moving outward from the subtle or energetic 
to the gross or physical. So the physical, the outer body includes the, the organs, the bones, the muscles, the tissues. Just below that, the subtle body includes the mind, emotions, senses. It constantly shifts the way the body functions at a biochemical level. And finally, the innermost body is where we transcend the self. It's the state of bliss, love, and oneness with all things, sometimes achieved in deep prayer, meditation, or transcendent experiences. Western medicine tends to limit itself to the physical layer of the body, the one that can be measured, scanned, opened, rearranged, sealed back up, as well as the biochemical elements that can be manipulated with drugs. And that's great. It's amazing what we can do working with those layers alone. But all we have to do is look around to see that it's not really enough. And I think most of us can point to times when both sickness and healing seem to have sprung from those farther, invisible reaches of the mind and the spirit. Sometimes an imbalance in the realms we can't touch or measure bubbles up into the physical body as immune or nervous system, hormone dysregulation, pain, inflammation, mysterious symptoms that we might be able to suppress with drugs, but not cure. And sometimes, not always, not reliably, but sometimes, physical healing originates with a shift in consciousness or circumstance that unleashes forces we don't fully understand. After my diagnoses in DC, they put me on proton pump inhibitors and synthetic thyroid hormones and sent me home. They said I'd probably have to be on the thyroid hormones for the rest of my life. But within a year, I was off all the meds. My body had regained homeostasis on its own as my circumstances shifted, along with my sense of purpose, agency, and social connection. Of course, I'd also started eating a balanced diet again, and my gut had healed from the constant onslaught of infections and antibiotics it encountered in Africa. I still don't know what the primary factor was that tipped me into sickness in Burkina or lifted me back out when I came home. For a long time, I nursed a secret shame that I could barely even acknowledge to myself, a suspicion that I had conjured the whole thing into being because I wanted to go home. And being sick was the only way to do that honorably. I knew I couldn't cry wolf, so I manifested a real excuse to quit. 20 years later, looking back, I think about it differently. With less shame, more gratitude. What if the layers of my being did conspire? What if they did it for my own good because I was out of alignment, on the wrong path, at war with myself? What if that's what it took to get me to honor my own truth with courage, even if it meant deviating from my plan, my sunk costs, the identity I'd crafted for myself and the world? I still have autoimmune antibodies against my thyroid that I have to keep an eye on, and in times of stress, I'll still sometimes get that burning in my chest. I treat these signals now as emissaries, messengers from a wiser part of myself, and I listen with curiosity, respect, and gratitude. Here's what I know for sure. There's a wisdom in the body-mind. When I'm quiet, I can hear it whisper. Thank you, Mo Perry. Thank you so much for that. Leslie Vincent, come on back for song number two. So this next song, um, 
Leslie, you wrote with your duet partner, Emily Dussault, and together you are the, the Champagne Drops. Drops. You know, every time you do a show, I could come on and do that for you. I would love that. Okay, we'll do that. Anyway, this song that you're going to do right now, you wrote for a friend, a good friend of yours, um, Addie Phelps. And it was, was it a birthday present? Yeah, it was just a random birthday present. Yeah. Uh, Emily and I were bored, and one of us texted the other and said, what if we just wrote Addie a song for her birthday? And we did. And this is also during COVID and lockdowns. Yeah. And so you guys, normally when you write songs together, you said you kind of, you get together in person, you riff. Yeah, so typically we sit on her couch, have some tea, take a couple hours, kind of just sing at each other. We've been doing this for about five years, so we have a pretty deep uh, musical connection. But it was during COVID, and she had a really young child, so she was, she was really cautious at the time. So we, we both were in a Google Doc chatting back and forth, writing some lyrics, and then I would play, send her a recording. She'd sing something, send me a recording. And we just did that back and forth until we had a finished song. What is the difference between writing uh, from your own life and writing a song about somebody else and trying to capture their life? Oh, it's way easier when it's someone else. <laughs> oh, yeah. But you were telling me earlier, too, there, there was that thing of you're capturing how they affect your yeah. life. Yeah, yeah. So Addie's one of those special friends who um, doesn't really, like, exist on this plane. She kind of is out here, and everything is magical and wonderful and really just present and exciting. And so when you're with her, you also feel present and excited, and everything tastes better and looks better and... She's the person that you want to text when you're in a dark time, yeah. Um, yeah. which is where this piece comes from. All right. Here's Leslie Vincent and Howl at the Moon. Blacker than ink in a bowl The world wants to swallow you whole Where is the light? it left you tonight Your senses are sharpened and tuned They capture each flavor and hue when you see it too The woods are dark and wide But I'm glad to wander them with you They told us all to keep it inside but with you I'll howl at the moon The leaves crackle under our feet I feel your little heartbeat As the shadows slip through Are they chasing you? But you hold your hand out to me And say what if we just could be free Wolves in the night Instead of running and hiding The woods are dark and wide But I'm glad to wander them with you They told us all to keep it inside But with you I'll howl at the moon And as our howls pierce the dark from your belly grows a spark A torch of golden light Shows us the woods are full of life The woods are dark and wide But I'm glad to wander them with you They 
told us how to keep it inside But with you I'll howl at the moon But with you I'll howl at the moon But with you I'll howl at the moon Yes! Thank you, Leslie, Leslie Vincent. Thank you so much. Yes. Now please help me welcome my guest for the conversation, Patty Wetterling. Patty, come on up. Patty Wetterling, everybody. <laughs> I'm so excited. My feet touched the pedal here. <laughs> we kind of thought that would happen. That's why we got these chairs. Thank you, Patty. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. I'm so honored. And thank you for everybody thank you. being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm just going to go, we're, we're going to jump into stuff, but I'm just going to go through a little bit of your bio. And this is also for people who listen or be listening on the podcast who may not be familiar with you, okay? So um, you became part of our collective conscience in 1989 when your 11-year-old son Jacob was abducted. And that tragedy motivated you to become an international advocate for missing and exploited children. You and your husband, Jerry, who's here tonight. Jerry is here tonight. Hi, Jerry. Yeah. Um, started a nonprofit called the Jacob Wetterling Resource Center, which is now part of the Zero Abuse Project. You advocated for the Jacob Wetterling Act in 1994, which helped establish a national sex offender registry. And you've continued to push for Congress to update the sex offender laws. You were the chair of the board of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. You ran for Congress twice in Minnesota, once in 2004 and again in 2006. In early September 2016, 27 years after his abduction, Jacob's abductor confessed to the crime and Jacob's remains were found. And now you are working on publishing a memoir called Dear Jacob, A Mother's Journey of Hope which will come out in fall of 2023, right? Yeah, okay. Thank so you. I wanna start with, I wanna start with the memoir you're working on. Um, when we were talking earlier, you said to me, for 27 years, you refused to l allow yourself to look back. It was all about looking forward, looking for the hope, hoping that answers would be found, Jacob would be found, um, clues, all that kind of thing. And yet you can't write a memoir without looking back. So that that was it's been like a muscle that you've had to try to exercise. Absolutely. Yeah. I I kept for all those years. I mean, I studied the issue of missing children. I know kids are out there. They come home and and I yeah. wanted that so badly and every day that's what I thought about is like what's next? What haven't we tried? I think I drove the sheriff's department a little crazy because <laughs> I kept thinking of new things. Yeah, Let's try yeah. this. You yeah. know, have you have you heard You're about that? To. Are there yeah. satellites up there? And they laughed. But then sure enough they said, Well yeah, there are, but they weren't focused there. Oh, but man. you know, it, it was just a journey. I, I had I was desperately needing to find out what else, what else what else do we do? Right, right. And you're writing the book with Joy. Joy's here, right? Joy's here, yes. Joy Baker? <laughs> yeah, Joy Baker's here. Hi, Joy. Um, and you met Joy in 2010, and that's been really helpful as far as, well, you said you have like walls of Post-its and stuff like that, or index cards, or that kind of thing? Oh my gosh, we had, we took a class together and some of the people that I met in the class are here as well. Oh, great. We have a whole writing team that meets every other Wednesday for like two and a half years we've been meeting. 
Um, but there's kind of a formula, and, and we'd had to put down the where you are when you start, and then this tragedy happens, and how do you climb your way back up, and, yeah. and then something else happens. And so we'd had post-its, and then we kept moving them because it was a moving journey. It's, like, it's what's nice about post-its, you know, that, that you can peel them off. And put <laughs> Absolutely. Brilliant design about post-its. Well, and what's, what's the worst thing that comes down here, and what's the next worst thing? It yeah. was just like, for me, it was, it, it was a long journey. Oh, yeah. And it absolutely wouldn't have become a book without Joy's perspective because I was too deep yeah. in, into all of it. And, and after 27, that's a career, Right. 27 years and how do you wrap that into a, a smaller version of what's important what's the most important thing what does anybody want to hear I didn't know yeah you said the first version of the book was 650 pages <laughs> I, think, I mean I, I, I assume that's an exaggeration or maybe not no it was about twice the size of Michelle Obama's book <laughs> okay she kept asking me tell me more I need to know more about this and then yeah. you know first of all I wanted to write it as a thank you a thank you for all the people who carried our family and the investigators oh, yeah. who never quit. And just and I kept thanking people. She said I, I couldn't have 27 names on two pages thanking, thank Al, I want to thank Steve. I want to thank, you know, it was yeah, just, right. so I, I had, to, had to pivot a, a lot of times. That could be a companion book. All the people <laughs> were going to say thank oh, you. Oh, I've yeah. started that, yes, oh, yeah. I have. Yeah. So, notes. In, um, so you started writing the book in 2015. No, actually, we started before then, didn't we? Or was it? Joy is nodding. Yes, <laughs> she's the fact finder. She's a good researcher. She has a post-it on her head that says 2015. You know, your there. life is is usually measured by time frames. You know, you go True. to college for four years, or you start kindergarten, and then 12 years later. When you're on a journey of a search, I had no idea how long is this going to take. So time was irrelevant. Yeah, 2015 sure. is exactly when we yeah, started. Right. <laughs> okay, so. And then in 2016 is when the case was cracked and um, the perpetrator was found and the remains were found and you guys set the book aside for two years. I was lost. Yeah. I, I had no idea who I was anymore. Right. Yeah, right, right, um, right. And what, and what do I do now? Right. <laughs> and um, so I couldn't write, I couldn't really think. I, I was pretty lost. I, I learned many times to pick myself up over life's journey. We all do. But I had a hard time coming back. You said, I was uh, a searching mother mm -hmm. for 27 years, like you said, like a career. Right. And then now that the remains have been found and you have your answer, now what? Well, yeah, now I was the parent of a murdered child, which is very different. Where's the hope in that? Yeah. You know, I hoped in every fiber of my being, believed in, in the hope and the possibility yeah. that Jacob would come home. And, and I even planned, what would we do? How would our family survive? And, yeah. and, and I, knew, I knew families who had. And I'd met kids who've come home, and, and I, I saw the healing that could take place. And that was, that was my life work, was believing and... Um, and, and that, when that was gone, uh, people viewed me different. And people would walk up to me in the grocery store and start crying. It's like, I'm so sorry. And I didn't want to go anywhere. Yeah, I, I right. just, I couldn't handle, I couldn't handle that piece. But I was grateful for the love and the support. But yeah. it was a really difficult time for me to measure all that out. So yeah, I took a long break. Well, and, then, and like you said, the, the, the fact that that was your identity. I'm the mom that's searching for the son. And then when that's not it, 
who am I now? Right. And so I think the book is the book. The reflection was amazing for me because I could reflect back on what, what keeps you going. Yeah. What, what got me out of bed in the morning? And it was really kids. Yeah. My own kids, my grandkids, children I met in the schools, letters. I got millions of letters from children. Wow. And their perspective was really the world I was fighting for. Right. And that, to me, is still a world worth fighting for. Why would we give up now? We had our answers, but it was a world that Jacob knew and believed in, and that's what those 11 traits are all about. Yeah. I honestly believe that if we taught our children to be kind, to be gentle, to be honest, to be fair, you know, be a good sport, be a good friend, all of those things that we would raise a better group of children who would never think to harm another. Amen. Yes, amen. You, you mentioned just a little earlier that you had met some of these children, missing children who had come home or dealt with the parents. And you were talking about how, uh, because of the foundation, and that, that that was part of the resources that you were providing. So Elizabeth Smart's parents reached out, and you were saying how you, when you met them, you were just crystal clear that she was still alive. I believe that. We met Ed and Lois in Alexandria, Virginia at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and, and my friend who also is a searching parent, she and I sat down with their family and we both walked away just having a strong, strong feeling. She's out there, she's alive, she's coming home and, and that's what we could share with that family and she did. Yeah. She did, she made it back. And you were talking about the three girls in Cleveland who were right. you know, captured in the basement for so many years and how they're doing really well. You were saying they're doing really well. You they keep in are, touch. They are. Um, they set up an or well, they set up different organizations to help rebuild community um, because that's the, the connectedness of all of us is what keeps us going. Jerry and I had coffee with a man who was kidnapped as, when he was three, and he was gone for five years. He and his brother were both gone and came back, and. It just hearing his story was really, really painful and hard, but the common thread with all of these kids who make it back is that they own their lives. They yeah. get to decide, where am I going today? What do yeah. I want to eat? Yeah. What, what can I do for somebody else? How can I raise my own children? And it's, it's such a strong thing we should all have. What am I going to do with this day? Yeah. What right. am I going to do to make the world better? How, who can I make happy? Whose hand do I want to hold? Is that the kid that you just you met just with yesterday? We just met with him, yeah, Friday. Friday, okay. And he, you were telling me that um, when he came home, then you were invited on the Montel Williams show, <laughs> and you and he, and when he was five years old, and you went on the Montel Williams show, and he remembered that. Or he was, no, he was eight he by then. He was eight, well, eight by then. Yeah. he corrected me. He said, I was only seven. You took me to FAO Schwartz and bought me birthday presents. <laughs> See what what a, what an amazing thing that is, and so now and how old is he now? He's thirty eight, and you haven't seen each other since then. No. Wow. See, isn't that cool? That's cool. That's he's a, very he's doing amazing, and yeah. and Elizabeth Smart has a ranch where people can heal in California, yeah. and she's helping others, and she's been screaming about getting sex education because she didn't have any of that when she had her experience. And yeah. Everybody's doing something. Um. Right after you found your answer, you talked about it at a press conference. And I thought this was really powerful when you said, Jacob was alive all those years until he wasn't the day that the remains were found. 
He was in our hearts and, yeah. and lives. And he's still, we still carry him in our yeah. hearts. He, right. We talk about him. We know the gift that he brought to all of us. Yeah. You were telling me that in your mind over the years, you had figured out what a reunion would be like. <laughs> I don't even think my kids know this. Okay. <laughs> I th- I, well, one of you said, well, maybe I rent the Metrodome. <laughs> At first, I thought, how yeah. can we thank everybody? Because yeah. our really family was carried. We couldn't have done this alone. Yeah. And we were carried by the love and the wishes and prayers. And then I thought, I, I pictured us on the on a beach in the south of France. <laughs> just, just the, like just the family. Just our family. Yeah. <laughs> But I lo- what I loved about this was this idea of keeping that hope alive. And so it's like, well, I better be ready as well, you're still searching. I knew we would need to heal. Yeah. And, and part of healing is building new memories. And I, I thought it would be good for all of us to get away from the public and just be ourselves and, and build some new memories. And you mentioned that, um, well, today is December 11th. Yeah. <laughs> and so and you're wearing your 11, and we have the... Um, 11 for Jacob. Tell us about the number 11 for you. You know, Jacob was 11 when he was taken, and it's such an alive age, sixth grade. Everything's big. Your friends are big, and and your relationships and sports and all of that. And when he was found, um, one of my friends at the National Center, her nephew, wanted to put 11 on his cheek for a soccer tournament in Virginia. And our office said, asked for permission. We thought it was great. but they thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if it stood for something? And so they took all of the things that we'd said about him and put together these 11 things and ran it past Jerry and I. And, and um, we wanted Jacob to be remembered for what he lived for, not how he died. Yeah, right. Not, not, not the tragedy of his right. being kidnapped, but who was this kid? And, yeah. and, and that's what they represent. And every, every month on the 11th, we honor we honor Jacob as it's just a special t- it's I can't even tell you how many times you look at the clock and it's 11 11 yeah and it's right. like make a wish we do that yeah, our family right, exactly. all does it when I called Patty a couple of months ago to say um, hey you know would you be a guest on the show and there was two dates available and one was the November 13th show and one was December 11th she was well you know the December 11th is uh, the 11th of the month is kind of special and I'm like done <laughs> done and done it's just like serendipitous okay let's do it so here we are honoring Jacob on the December 11th. Thank you. Yes, yes. Um, right after he was abducted, you talked about having a really, really, it was obviously a very, very dark time, of course. And you talked about the, the outpouring of support from people you didn't know uh, and how the press was so respectful. I'd have to, kudos to the Twin Cities press and, and St. Cloud as well, this being the bigger market. but. Um, they were kind to us. They were very respectful, and they told our story honestly and, and compelling so that people would come forward, and, and they did. And that people were looking everywhere. I, I got a call from the prime minister in Canada. Yes, I love that story. Yes, I love that story. <laughs> he yeah. said there's not a place Jacob could go in Canada where he wouldn't see his picture or hear his name or know his story. Brian Mulroney called me. Isn't that incredible? I thought yeah. that was, yeah, let's clap for amazing. that. I thought that was incredible. That's incredible. We were also talking about the Vietnam vets that really felt a kindred spirit with what you were going through. They had a a huge balloon launch in November, so it was shortly after Jacob was taken, and and it was honoring all of the prisoners of war and and missing in action. And I listened to these people speak. They had all these these black balloons for those still missing, and they had one white 
one for Jacob, and they said the way we see it is he's missing in, in action. Yeah, right. And I missing. thought, yeah. for the first time, somebody understood exactly what we were talking about. You never give up, and you, you search for answers, and, yeah. and this became a really strong um, belief because he, these people knew how to hope, and they knew what they, how to keep going. Yeah. A couple of months ago, Pauline Boss, Dr. Pauline Boss was our guest, and she coined the term uh, ambiguous loss. And one of her first sort of sets of clients was the wives of the MIA, uh, Missing in Action in Vietnam, and that whole thing of how you can grieve and yet still hope. Uh, and it's okay to do both. It's both and. Both and. <laughs> and her big thing now is the, is the myth of closure. And I know you heard a lot about that. People are like, oh, you got closure now. Yeah, I, did. I call it, we got answers. There's yeah. no closure. It's not like I could go back to being who I was. And, you know, the, the, the only people who get closure are the, the police. They, they absolutely do close the book. True. After true. 27 years of talking to them all, all the time, every week, every month, um, I really haven't heard from any. Yeah. You ran for Congress <laughs> yes. in, twice in 2004, 2006. Kind I'm a, of a, I'm a slow a, learner. <laughs> you're a slow learner. I don't think so, Patty. <laughs> I don't think so. But you wanted to reach a higher platform. You wanted to take your message to a higher platform. I wanted to be a child advocate in Washington. Congress yeah. is for two years, so who's thinking long-term? Who's looking out for the long-term things that have to happen to build that better, safer world for children? So that was my... my only goal, really. I had never thought about politics and, and never really wanted to, but I didn't know of a child advocate in Washington, actually, so I was, I was looking to be that. I was thrilled. I didn't live in your district, so I couldn't vote for you, but I was thrilled. A lot of us were thrilled that you were running because it's like, yes, that's the kind of people that we need. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. Um, after uh, the case was cracked in 2016, speaking of Congress, they, uh, there was a proclamation that was passed by Congress. And it was one of those, I'll just read a little bit of it. Whereas Patty and Jerry Wetterling faced the unimaginable tragedy of having their 11-year-old son, Jacob Wetterling, abducted near their home in Stearns County, Minnesota on October 22, 1989. Whereas Patty Wetterling has become a nationally recognized educator on child abduction and sexual exploitation of children, whereas the Star Tribune selected Patty Wetterling as one of the 100 most influential Minnesotans of the century. And I have to stop and go, wait, what? <laughs> so this was 2016, but back in 1999, the Star Tribune chose you to be one of the most influential Minnesotans of the entire century. That's huge, Patty. That's a, that's a hundred years. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, I mean, that's like 1900 to 1999. But, I mean, that is an incredible honor, isn't it? It was, it was beyond comprehension, really. I, I, I mean, I give that honor. That really is because of the people in Minnesota and, yeah. the, and the media kept the story alive. And, and Jacob, Jacob was driving this ship the whole time. It yeah. was his heart, his, his safety that everybody was concerned about. So I really didn't think about the me part of it. I was just doing what I could to find him. Yeah, but I just, I think it's great when we recognize people like you. Thank you. Yes, 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 yes. Also, the proclamation credits you with the passage of the 
Jacob Wetterling Crimes Against Children and Sexually Violent Offender Registration Act in 1994. And this is a law that, a federal law, that requires states to implement a sex offender and crimes against children registry. You're feeling differently about this act now. Yes, a little bit. I, I still think it's a good law enforcement tool sure. in, in some ways, although there's some flaws with that too. But a lot of, well, the Adam Walsh Act caused, made all states register um, even juveniles. And oh. I'm like, these are kids. I met a 10-year-old who was at a sex offender treatment program in Mississippi, and it's like 10, and you're going to put him on a registry? Yeah. You know, this kid, is, he needs to be taught a better way. He needs to know better behavior, and they have an incredibly high rate of success. Like 97% of these kids don't do it again. They don't cause problems when they get some help. So why would we choose to put him on a registry, which is, in today's world, a life sentence. Yeah. You never get off, and, you know... I met, a, I met a young kid who was 16. He got kicked off the football team. He got kicked out of school. He couldn't live at his grandma's house because she lived near a, near a school. And you know, this, this is a young man who was a good kid. He dated a girl that lied about her age. And then he got to be a registered sex offender. And I'm like, we need to revisit yeah, what's yeah, working, what's yeah. not. You can't just pass a law and just call it good. That was, that was passed. It was part of the 94 crime bill. It's been... Well, I just love that your that your advocacy keeps going. It's sort of like, yeah, let's do that, but okay, let's 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 fix it. Let's okay, that's how it's being implemented. No, maybe not. Maybe it's going too far, and that's you just you're not stopping your advocacy. Um, it's it's hard. I, I can't. Of course, really. <laughs> of course. Well, it's, it's 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 part of. Speaking of which, so um, a reporter asked you a question there again after the case was cracked about um, Danny Heinrich, and you. You had said you had a really hard time, you told me on the phone, really a time of relating to him. And then you heard some things about him, like he was caught stealing from a thrift store when he was a kid. And you were talking about red flags. And how many red flags were there that were not seen by social services or other people or friends or family that could have stopped someone like him from doing what he did? And is there not a way to open up that awareness so that we aren't um, manufacturing these people that do these horrible things. Right, that was really the only way I could think about the man who took Jacob along the way, was to think that at one point he was an 11-year-old child. So what went wrong? Yeah. What went wrong, and how can we intercede earlier? I, um, there's people here from the Minnesota Department of Health, uh, sexual violence prevention work. How can we back it up? And so that we're not raising kids who do this. We teach girls how to be safe and carry mace and travel together, watch your drinks, all of that. But where are we teaching boys how to act? Yeah. How to not cause that harm, how to respect right, right. others and how to have healthy relationships. And, and that, that's really where I, my heart wants to be because I just don't want another family to have to go through this yeah. and, or even be the parent of a child who's going through that. Get them some help. There is help, and it could have stopped a lot of victims. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I can't tell you, though, the sense of grace that is coming from you when you say about him, he was an 11-year-old boy at one point, too. And that is just pretty stunning. 
to have that perspective. And then, the, you know, the 11 for Jacob, those 11 things, the be kind, be honest, and those things. Maybe that in schools, maybe that would change or bring some awareness to, to somebody who's struggling with that and no one's noticing that they're struggling with that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that that's the world that we're fighting for and that's the world that everybody believes in their heart is. Yeah. But we have to make it happen and it is collaboration and communication and, and um, talking to kids, find out what's in their world and, and, and building the world that they so badly deserve. Um, there again, we were talking a little earlier uh, you had said that for a really, really long time, you, had, you felt like you had a deep lack of confidence. You felt the sense of failure because you, you couldn't find Jacob. I still wrestle with that some. I, I worked really hard, but I never did what I set out to do. But you said you're starting now to get this sense of peace. Do you think writing the book is helping that? Writing the book is, has, has helped tremendously. Yeah. I had to look at you know, what did change and what is better and how, and there's a lot, and I have great confidence and faith in our, in our youth, but it's our job to, to help nudge them in, in the right directions. But writing the book and revisiting and the letters from kids. Yeah. Can I tell you my favorite? Please, yes. <laughs> this kid, his name was Dalton. He was in second grade, so he had that second grade paper, and he said, I hope Jacob comes home. I hope he's not dead, D-E-D. He said, my, my uncle died and my dog died too. If Jacob's in heaven, he can play with my dog. Oh, is that the best? That's the kid's best. perspective is what yeah. it's all about. Don't give up. Don't give up. Eagles are <laughs> are big with you. Yes, Jacob made a sort of paper mache uh, construction paper eagle in fifth grade art, and um, so we have had that on our stand and for all these years and um every time i mean throughout the whole journey i see eagles everywhere it's like they find me and i just kind of look up and it's like hi jake yeah wow, i see I you i see you yes right exactly here. exactly when we were talking just a couple of days ago um you said oh we were decorating our christmas tree yeah. with a lot of the gifts we that did. you had been given over the years we have a lot of homemade jacob's hope ornaments and and Hope is on the top of the tree. It's all over the tree. Yeah. It's really lovely, and it, it's this has been a good year for us. Our kids are doing amazing, and our grandchildren are totally amazing. And, you know, you have that opportunity of how are you going to feel today? What are you going to do? And yeah. who are you going to be? And it was really fun to decorate that tree and, and feel grateful, thankful, yeah. and hopeful once again. Yeah, some of your kids are here, yes? Some of your yeah, kids are our here. two daughters are here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank Welcome. You. Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're so grateful for those gifts and for the outpouring of all the years, and we are so grateful for you coming here tonight thank you. and giving us this gift, giving me this gift, to be our guest tonight. So thank you, Patty. Thank, thank you. you so thank much. You Patty Wetterling, everybody. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you, Patty. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes. Thanks to Patty Wetterling, please. All right, everybody, that's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Patty Wetterling, please. Thank you one more time. One more time. And Leslie Vincent. Thank you, Leslie Vincent. Come on up, Leslie. And uh, uh, Rosanna Staffa. And Mo Perry. And Celia Pontaza. 
and Zippy Lasky. And our engineers tonight, John Robinson and Dylan Payne, and Lexi Carlson on the lights, and Sarah Erdman taking our pictures, and thank you to our assistant, Kira Shukar, and our amazing volunteers, Carolyn Denton and Suzanne Egley. And I want to give a heartfelt thank you to everyone here at this beautiful women's club. Thank you for a year full of meaningful, meaningful shows. Really appreciate it. Okay, please visit our website at uh, www.islandofdiscardedwomen.com to hear all of our episodes and for information about our next shows. And we will be back very soon with another live Island of Discarded Women. Thank you, everybody. I am Sue Scott. Good night. Thank you. Good night.